This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill, and it is uh, fall time. So you know what that means, Patrick? Lots of hunting and fishing. Lots of hunting and fishing. Yeah. Thank goodness. Been outside more than I've been <laughs> inside, for sure. I don't know about you, but this time of year, it's so nice to throw the hoodie on, get out in the outdoors, and have a good time. Somebody just uh, just here recently was saying, you know, we're supposed to get some nasty weather Tuesday, Wednesday. And they said, well, it looks like a good day to do some indoor projects. And I turned to him and looked like Adam and said, looks like some good days to be outside. That's right. Getting outside. I remember last year, I mean, we had weather really early. Remember that? That was like all the Labor branches day. broke off my tree. What, yeah. October 10th? We got that heavy, heavy, oh, wet snow. Yeah. We had two big ones. September 4th and October 10th. Mm-hmm. We had snow at my house last year. And I mean, you look outside right now, it's gorgeous. It's great fall weather, and you know I wanted to talk to you about this. I mean, you've had a chance to spend some time up in the hills, up in the mountains, play around with the horses and the bears and everything else. So you know, it's always one of those th- fun things. I remember when my dad he used to go up into the Hoback, and they'd take horses and they'd go way in there. And every year he'd come back with some great stories about the backcountry and the different perils and things that you deal with when you're back there. So I was like, I think it'd be good to talk to David about this and just hear how the season. Went. Well, season was was great. I mean, I'm not no complaints. I spent lots of time outside, away from cell service. Which uh, how can you complain about that? I even changed my voicemail to to <laughs> say uh, this is David's phone. If it's September, I'll call you in October. And I got a few comments about that. And I noticed that. That was nice, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I will work pretty much the rest of the year. So. Give, yeah, give a guy a break. It. Yeah, you need it. I mean, you've been putting in a lot of hours with Bow Spider, and I mean, it's good for you to get away and just do what you love to do. Oh, and it was it was a really good season. We were into elk all the time, day and night, um, under 100 yards perpetually. Just never got the right one to stand in the right spot and really connect and get it done. But uh, between the horses and the bears, I don't know which one's more dangerous. That one's up for debate. I'm not sure either. <laughs> I've heard some doozies on both of them. So yeah, we uh, we didn't have any real real um, scary bear encounters this year. We definitely had lots of bear just activity activity. Bears were everywhere, out and about. Seen quite a few. Uh, it was really surprising to see a really big uh, grizzly walking across the meadows that we were hunting midday. You know, we'd be just, you know, you get that midday doldrums when you're elk hunting where sometimes it's just, they shut down activity, especially this year. The the moon phase was right out of sync or in sync. I don't know how what you want to say, but it was, I, I remember laying in the wall tent going to bed about nine You know, we get up about four and about 10 o'clock, I, I kind of stir in my sleeping bag and look. I'm like, would somebody turn the light off outside? Because <laughs> the whole tent's illuminated and you go look outside and that moon had come up. Full moon, middle of September is not, it's not a fisherman or an elk hunter's favorite friend. No, it's hard because I mean, then the animals are active at night when you're not out hunting and actively shooting. And so that makes it tough for a hunter. 
Yeah, the uh, the horses more than once figured out that our uh, solar fence, well, the battery is a little bit weak, so it quit shocking at night. Now, they, they'd be in all day while we were gone, but at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'd be uh, awoken to stomping and thundering of hooves, and I'd get up in my, my jammies and quick put a coat on because it was cold and didn't really need a flashlight, but I had to go mm-hmm. grab a lead rope and run around and wrangle them back in, so... One thing we did this year with the horses that really made it uh, pretty pleasurable is we took a stock tank in. So the last two years, we've just been watering them morning and night, right? So you have to be back for sure. And the horses in camp are a lot of work. Now they definitely, I mean, they earn their keep. They make where we go and what we do viable. I mean, a lot of the places we hunt, you put a bull down, it's going to take two guys, you know, four trips which i mean you're pretty much one trip a day maybe two if you really push it i mean you're talking six hours round trip sometimes and so you do that to two guys and you're pretty well burnt for a couple days you need you need a camp day just to get off your feet so having the capability of we hang the meat like i've talked about and run out grab the horses run back in and make them carry all that weight is you know that's one thing we've talked about on this podcast before if you're going hunting have a plan for if you're successful, I mean, don't, you know, whether it's antelope in August, like we've talked about, I mean, the, the best thing with those is get the skin off, get the hide off, get the guts out, get them quartered and on ice in less than 60 minutes. I mean, it's got to be done now because it can be triple digits when you're harvesting an antelope and a little 90 pound or hundred pound antelope is not going to keep very well in that heat. I mean, even a big elk isn't, but thankfully, typically when we're harvesting these elk, it's you know, down to 40s at night. It's refrigerator outside. If not, it was colder this year. It was, there was a couple mornings we woke up in the 15s going to hunting. So it was, it's a little tough to <laughs> get up. We have a wood stove in that wall tent. And I'll tell you what, that, uh, that definitely warms you through the core. Yeah. But that was nice to be able to come back in and crank it up and, and heat up a little bit. And, but I've wanted to ask you what your strategy was because of the full moon. I mean, did you approach anything differently? We ended up getting up actually a little bit earlier, you know, actually locating those bulls in the dark, using a locate bugle and trying to just through echolocation, figure out where they were headed for their bedding time. And then we'd just follow them instead of usually we're just trying to intercept them between their feet and their bed. This year, a lot of times before daylight, they've already left those feeding grounds and they're, they're moving and they're headed and their, their vocalization was dropping down to I mean, the first few days was amazing. It was great elk hunting. We're talking 15th, 16th, 17th. We were in between multiple, multiple bulls screaming at each other, chased them down, you know, bugled at them. They turned around and come back to challenge you. And that was, it was the typical, the elk hunting that I like to do, right? Which is go in there and, you know, instigate a fight and get the bull to, to respond to that is fun. When they're kind of being chickens a little bit and you know they'll answer you and go the other way it's just not as not as much fun as when when you get that thousand pound animal running at you instead of running away from you it's uh you know i guess those still small moments of just insanity happen that's pretty cool so as far as like you know your camp your setup um so you said that you did it a little bit different with the stock tank this year was there anything else that you modified just to make it a little bit better like i said we brought that uh electric fence in we had just been highlining them which is it's a good secure way to keep them and if you don't know what a highline is it's just a rope tied between two trees and then you tie the horse 
to each there's a segment a loop in inside that rope right so kind of like long lining for halibut right you've got your main line and then you put your droppers or your bait or trout lining same kind of thing and the reason that you need to do that is if you tie a horse to a tree every day for as long as we were there you know they're gonna that lead rope's gonna ring that tree and kill it so pretty much you know you do that year after year after year in the same campsite you have no live trees around and you're just going to be in blowdown so high lining them is is the preferred method if you're you know in a couple let's say seven days in a camp in the wilderness but having that electric fence we could just it's it's better on the horses they get to stretch out and walk around a little bit you know better mentally for them as well they're they're getting to do something instead of just stand tied now we had the high line and once I, f- I figured out that I was going to get up at two o'clock in the morning and catch horses every night, uh, when we come in at dark, I'd catch them, tie them. And then before we left every morning in the dark, I'd just unclip them. And I actually left the lead ropes just tied on the high line. So I just had to grab a halter, walk them over there and clip them up. But having that area electrified was, was pretty nice as far as, you know, we take, um, uh, Wyoming hay cubes up, which is a, a certified weed freed feed and you don't want to be feeding your horses weeds and sprinkling those around the wilderness right we all know why but it was you know pretty easy as far as give them some feed in the morning give them some feed in the evening when you're back and that stock tank held about five six days worth of water so you know if for some reason we couldn't make it back till the next morning you know yeah they're not gonna be happy with me but and you can't do that every day with horses like llamas or something else yeah they'll they'll tolerate that a lot better but you know it's nice having that kind of backup plan because if we get an elk right at dark you know i'm not worried about getting back getting the horses watered they got water they'll they'll be all right i'll feed them a little extra heavy the next day yeah those wyoming hay cubes are growing across the street from me so it's pretty cool that you're hauling those up there but those do come in handy i'm sure oh they're you can get certified bales but you know it's just volume of how long we're up there and how many how much feed we actually need it's it's now it's not cost conducive it's expensive it's like 5x per day what my normal horse feed is here at home. But it's it's worth it to have, like I said, having those critters there, having horses there, having that backup plan in place of what we're going to do with meat once an elk hits the ground. It, it was worth it. And like I said, this year was a tough, tough hunt. We had, we had several tags in camp. Several guys had lots of encounters, lots of opportunities just between the, the moon. And then we got some snow. And I'll give everybody a tidbit. The last three years when it snowed during archery season, I get really excited. I'm like, oh, I get to hunt elk in the snow. Every year, their activity level decreases 75%. We still called bulls in. We still had fun. But for about 96 hours after that, and it was enough snow, there was you could track in it, right? We're not talking just a flurry. Um, my opinion, elk hunting in the snow archery season, if you want to be actively calling bulls in is not, <laughs> if it, if it snows again next year, archery season, I'm going to, I'm going to take off and go mule deer hunting for <laughs> two days. Yeah. It, it changes the game, but you know, in response to that, you got to change your game obviously. And so you guys, I'm sure made some adjustments, but tell some of the, some of the stories of, you know, some of the encounters you had and some of the opportunities and, and maybe you know, what maybe you would do different next time. So we, we did a lot of actually two and three man team and the three man team seemed to be by far the most effective. And so we're, we're bouncing around these meadows feed feeding where they're coming out big meadows and they're going back up to benches above the meadows to bed and we're catching them somewhere between there, 
you really want to catch them kind of while they're still out in the meadow so you can position yourself where you think they're going to go and you might not even have to call you could just slip around that meadow and while they start you know slowly feeding their way out of the meadow you can just walk walk right along the edge of the meadow and intercept them but this year wasn't that so you know there's there's one bull in particular and uh an arrow got shot at him but he didn't he didn't end up getting him but we had a a three-man team and this particular morning i was the main caller and then we had the shooter and then a backup shooter slash backup caller, right? So if you think about three guys strung out in a line, the first guy is kind of the shooter. The guy in the very back is calling. The guy in the middle can do either. If the bull slips around the first guy, the second guy is going to get him. But we did a lot of calling back and forth between that guy and myself. And we got this bull just fired up. And we actually crossed the bottom of the drainage twice, crossed the river and climbed up. Basically, the bull was on the, the north side. We climbed up. He he answered us a little bit on the north, but there was a bull on the south side that it was answering a little more aggressively. So I was like, let's go after that one. We got over there, climbed up to his bedding area, and crickets, silent. And we were over there set up for about a good half hour, and we've we've got a pretty good, you know, make a bunch of calling, make a bunch of racket, sit down and be quiet. Especially that late morning, 9, 10 o'clock when they're going to bed, you may just get a bull that is going to go put his cows to bed and circle back around real quick and see if, you know, if there is a lone cow there. So that cadence, that rhythm of calling, you know, you and I want a cow call and 60 seconds later want an elk to roll in. In their world, you know, they can come back 20 minutes later and come see who's there and that's that's fine with them. They, they, for some reason, have something on their mind or agenda. So there's a lot of people out there that are smarter and wiser than me at this. But definitely this year, we utilized the tactic of, like I said, we, we crossed that river south, chasing that bull, got up there, ripped a couple big bugles, about 20 minutes of quiet, and that bull to the north just started firing off. And what we figured out is that bull had actually was working on his way to his bed. He was pretty active bugling in his feeding area less active when he was moving and once he hit his bed then he started talking to us and so we crossed back north across that creek again and it's you know you've got to climb some pretty steep banks in and out of the creek we're not talking 10 feet we're talking you know 75 yard pretty sluffy bank down to the creek get across the creek climb that 75 yards back up before you can even hear anything so that whole time you're transitioning you don't know if that elk's still going to be there or not and it's a lot of energy and expense you know physical capital just to get it done so we happened across that and he had come down back out of and come down and gone up in that half hour window so we started sneaking up there and this was actually the second morning we were working on this same bull and he had done the exact same thing and the morning before he'd got our wind and that wind at about nine o'clock in the morning the sun has come up it's hitting those north faces really heating them up and that's going to start lifting the air as the air's warming but the back side of those the air is still cooling so it's still sucking down so you get really swirling wind depending on which side of what ridge you're standing on now by 10 11 you've got full sun full heat and you pretty much have enough draft till the sun goes behind the the hill in the afternoon evening so you know you're going to have early mornings usually you got wind going down mid-morning the wind just swirls all directions and then you know all day it's going to blow up till mid-afternoon it's going to swirl and then sometime in the evening it'll start blowing down i mean i've patrick you know everybody says play the wind play the wind play the wind and you have to i mean elk can see 
or smell. I mean, they can smell you two, three hundred yards away and it only takes a breeze blowing their direction. It can be blowing, let's say the wind's blowing south for 40 minutes straight and you're climbing, you know, the bull's north in front of you, you're climbing up, climbing up. And all of a sudden you just get a little gust for three seconds on the back of your neck. If you're close enough, your scent's going to drift up to him and it's all over just that quick. (laughs) I mean, you can invest a ton of capital and time. So that wind is, you can't, especially in the mountains where we're at, you can't ever yeah. predict it. You can't guarantee it. You just have to do your best and realize you're going to mess up more than you succeed with the wind. And I had some people ask me that when I went on my pack trip, they're like, what, which way is the wind going to come out of? I was like, well, pretty much every direction because that's just <laughs> the way it is in the Wind River Mountains. I mean, you don't know. I mean, five minutes ago, it could have been coming out of the south. Ten minutes later, it's out of the west. So, I mean, I mean, you guys were working hard. I mean, you're, you're playing the wind. You're trying to make the right approach. You're trying to trying to do the right things. And, and those elk, as you've said, you know, before, I mean, they kind of just, they educate you more and more every year because they do something a little different. So this bull gave us a good education that we, we continually bugled from that bottom feeding meadow. We had done the same thing, crossed the river, hunted the bull in the South. He, he completely went radio silent. So this was the second morning where uh, I'm sitting here going deja vu. Cause just right. And we actually, I let those guys get further in front of me, which was a little hairy, but it, it did a couple things is one was the day before we acted like a continuous herd that was moving closer to him. This day I acted more like a herd that was down in the meadow feeding and we were definitely corresponding back and forth, him and I, and I just kind of kept his attention and kept him vocalizing enough while the other two guys slipped in to about 90 or hundred yards away. And then we went radio silent for about 10, 15 minutes and I moved right up behind him and I just, I moved up to where I thought they were. They'd moved far enough up and through the timber that I wasn't quite sure where I was at. And a couple times I looked around while I was loudly cow calling and bugling and raking a tree going, you know, those guys are about 100, 150 yards above me. If a bear just appears out behind one of these trees, I'm, I'm lunch. And, you know, we're not talking that I'm, I'm paranoid of bears and we're, we're down here in the flats around your house, Patrick. I'm, I'm talking we're a mile past the meadow that we've seen the grizzly walk across midday and not even give a care in the world, right? So we're, we're in his, his back pantry, basically, and we're acting like his, his supper. So, you know, I was a little concerned about that. And I, I finally I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I carry uh, two cans of bear spray and I carry a 10 mm hard cast bullets. Uh, one can of bear spray is clipped to my backpack. The other can of bear spray is actually in the pocket of my pants. If I'm, for whatever reason, take my backpack off and it happens sometimes during the day, you know, you go in the bathroom, taking a nap, whatever, you know, but I pretty much religiously try and keep my backpack on. Kind of two thoughts is if I do get mauled, I'm going to let that bear have the backpack, right? If you can. Okay, I'm going to try and roll over in the fetal position on the ground and hopefully yeah. one of the guys that's with me will come deal with the bear. Um, you know, I've seen guys, they put their pistol on their hip of their backpack. That's fine, but keep your backpack on. Right? Yep. Um, so on this bull, I'm getting a little nervous of, you know, I haven't seen or heard these guys for about 10, 15 minutes. I know approximately they've climbed up just to the cusp of the edge of the bench where that bull was, had gone the day before. And I creeped up there. And I moved probably that 150 yards silently over about 15 minutes. And I got right behind them and we changed the type and volume of bugle that we used. And we bugled about, like I say, 90 or 100 yards away from his bed. And he came 
unglued. I quickly backpedaled about 50 yards and sidestepped up the drainage just a little bit so that I could shoot my call kind of downhill and around the hill from him instead of just straight at him. So basically I'm calling 180 from the bull, even though I'm, you know, that close. And that bull came on a string and he came right now. I think he came in about 17 yards from the from the shooter. And the day before when he was coming, the shooter was moving a little bit and the wind switched. So he caught movement and he caught smell at about 50 yards. This time the shooter's stationary and that bull thinks that there's somebody coming to interrupt his nap time in his bedroom. And so that tactic of we were, I was 250, 300 yards away, sounding like a bunch of elk. The elk all went quiet. All of a sudden there's an elk a hundred yards away, about 15 minute time span difference. And like I said, we went from a a high-pitched three-note little locate bugle, sounding like a little bull with a few cows, to that deep, guttural, big bull chuckling bugle and just basically said, hey, I'm here. I'm going to kick your butt. And he (laughs) said, oh, yeah, I don't think so. So it was, I mean, it was intense going from when the bugle's echoing at two or 300 yards, it's like what we hear on TV. You know, it's that wispy, high-pitched, somewhat audible. But when they're bugling at 90 yards, Patrick, it... It's a uh, intestinal bowel shaking. I mean, you, you feel it before you hear it. It's just that raw. It's pretty powerful and intense. And if you haven't ever been, you know, that close when a bull just screams at you, hey, you're in my space, go away. That's, it's an experience all of its own. So what happened when this bull comes in on a string, then what? He came in straight at the the, the shooter. Um, I think it was 17 yards and... You know, uh, shooter sounds like he made, made he was already draw back, calm, steady, you know, had ranged it and the arrow just didn't hit the mark. And that, that frontal shot is, uh, it's very lethal. I've been on uh, four frontals and, you know, it has to go where it's supposed to go. And it, you're talking about a grapefruit size target. So it's not a 35 or 40 yard shot. It's a 10 to 15 yard shot. And what I found this year was you really need to pay attention to the back two feet. You know, if you can see more of one of his hind quarters than the other, he's not straight enough on to take that shot and you need to just wait till he turns, right? Or wait till he keeps coming past you, which is hard. It takes a lot of restraint when you're talking 15, 16, 17 yards, you know, but you can't wait and try and shoot him while he whirls. What you're going to have to do is if you don't have that shot and it's not, I mean, he's basically got to come straight at you. And the goal of this whole game is to get them to actually come past the shooter, right? They're coming to look at the collar and, and you know, meet up with these other elk. So the goal is hopefully if the wind's right and you've done everything right, he walks right past you. But it's elk hunting, Patrick. I mean, it's, it, you, can't, you can't predict any of it. So, you know, it just didn't happen. And we did get the arrow off the string and that's... You know, it was, it was, there was a real high of, Hey, we just got a great shot on a great bull and we're going to get this. And then went through the, the finding the arrow and finding and tracking. And I mean, ultimately till later afternoon of going, yeah, this is, this is not going to end the way we thought the story was. So, you know, definitely doing your due diligence. Broadheads need to be, you know, everybody talks about broadheads all the time and oh well, this and that. I mean, shot placement vitally is more important than broadheads. They need to be a, a quality brand a quality construction you're not going to use broadheads you use on whitetail on elk you know some of those broadheads that they market a two and a half inch cut you hit a big bone on an elk and you're not going to have a blade left right but you also don't want to be shooting little half inch or three quarter inch 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 and a half 
up to two inch cut, good solid construction, mechanical or fixed is fine, but being accurate with them. I mean, and that's, that's more important because honestly you put, you put an arrow through both lungs and they're not going to live. doesn't matter what brought yeah. it. So tell me a little bit about the equipment. I want to talk about bow spider. I mean, I'm sure you guys were rocking the bow spider as you were doing this hunt. So how, how integral was that to the game plan and helping you do this hunt? Well, we talked about the snow and the day it was snowing, um, we were just hiking and bugling and hiking and bugling. And I caught movement because it's, you know, the whole ground's covered with snow at about 90 yards running full trot at us. And a a medium-sized five point was just coming, full on coming. I still, I just had a bugle tube. My bow was clipped on my bow spider. And the guys behind me commented, they were amazed at how fast that bow was off my back. Arrow knocked and at full draw because that bull, I mean, at full trot at 90, he came in and stopped at about 48 yards just because the way the terrain was, I was in the saddle. He was coming to the saddle. He got to the saddle where he could see where he heard that elk and we followed his tracks. He'd been running trotting downhill for about 500 yards in that snow never made a peep never knew he was coming nothing so i made the the comment to the guys and i said you know yeah it's it's my company it's my product i should be using it but dang i love this bow spider right because it's i'm to the point now it's either on my hip or on my back on my pack and my bow comes off when i need it and the rest of the time you know and i did 50 percent calling and 50 percent hunting half the time i was the shooter half the time i was the caller and, you know, I had my opportunities and it, it was a great season. It was probably one of the best as far as elk encounters, elk activity. Part of it was, like I said, I just, we probably got up a half hour earlier every day. We were a little bit smarter about where we went, playing the wind. I wasn't always pushing 10 miles deep every day. There was a couple of days that we went on a, a normal David walkabout. And you ask my hunting partners what that is and David just kind of puts the afterburners on and wants to see what's over the next ridge. But there's a lot of days we just crept up to a meadow and chilled out and got into quite a few elk. So that bow spider, honestly, Patrick, I mean, we're we're talking, you're doing an average of 10 miles a day, but some days are 12. Some are only eight, like I said, just because we played it cool this year. But over half that's off trail. I mean, we're not talking we're on a nice little horse trail like when you and I go fishing to a lake where you're sure. nice gravel path, you know, maybe a log here and there. No, it's every step is off balance, off kilter, going over a log, stepping in a mouse hole or tripping on a stick. You know, it's there's you're always on in vegetation, always on brush. And so having your hands free, especially as we get into more of that technical climbing, hiking stuff, it was kind of cool with the snow to, to follow the elk and really learn how they're using the country. They use 10% of it. Now they're in a hundred percent of it, but they really utilize 10% of that, you know, square mile or 10 square miles. They're in, they're in one square mile of 10 square miles, but you've got to go through all 10 square miles to find that little nook and cranny that they're kind of habitating. So one suggestion, I've said this before, is elk kind of need three things to live. They need food, water, and shelter. If you find two of those, you've got them. Same thing as fire. Fire needs, you know, fuel, oxygen, ignition. You take two of those away, you can't have fire. But if you have two, you can have fire for a limited time. So there's a correlation there of if you find two, don't worry about the third one. You're, you're between either where they're going to bed and where they're going to eat or where they're going to eat and where they're going to drink. So it was everybody in camp was rocking a bow spider. And I mean, I don't think they were rocking them just to uh, please my ego. It's because it really is a tool that is that useful. 
Well, it's better than carrying it around in your hands. So if you guys are out there and you are interested after hearing all that, go to bowspider.com. You can pick up your very own bow spider. You can get some extra receivers so you can mount them in a few extra spots and uh, yeah, see how much of a game changer it is for you. So I packed my primary bow and my backup bow, two receivers on both headrests. And my backup bow is a 10 year old bow, but it's one that I've kept around. I shoot well. And you know, if I was to have any sort of equipment malfunction, you know, instead of, Hey, I got to go to town, go to a bow shop or go to a press or whatever. No, it's grab the other bow that's tuned up, ready to go. You know, it's, it'd be like going fishing with one fishing pole or two, right? Yep. Yeah. I always take it back up just in case, but you were talking about horse wrecks. Uh, I want to transition to that a little bit and kind of horse adventure stuff. So <laughs> tell me, tell me what happened with horses this year. Well, you know, three years ago, I, I got a bunch of these horses and, uh, got the round pen and started doing quite a bit of work in the spring. I was still in college. Bow Spider hadn't started up in full yet. And so I spent quite a bit of time spring in the round pen with all of them, just, just going through basics, putting the pack saddle on, putting some panniards on them and getting them tuned up and ready. Right. And summertime, we did a few pack trips with some young men and did some other stuff and got them out and used them. And, and, and we didn't have any issues, like really any, so to speak. Uh, the last two years I've had <laughs> zero time in the spring and summer to really spend with the horses. Right. So it's, I mean, it was a scramble just to get shoes on this year. And, um, I drug my feet on getting a farrier and miscommunicated with another farrier and it just didn't get the pig to the zoo, so to speak. And, uh, I ended up getting to put shoes on, which was, it's a good skill to learn. I'm glad I did it and bought all the equipment and it's, if I ever throw a shoe, I, I feel very confident that, I mean, those shoes that I put on the horses are still on there and none are lame. So and now I wouldn't recommend everybody go out and do that. It it took a lot of, <laughs> I've been uh, annoying my farrier for almost three years of just when he comes, I'm grabbing my nippers and my file and in his way more than anything. But like I said, it's to the point now, can I do it? Yes. Do I want to? Um, no. But back to horses didn't get put in the round pen this spring. I think I grabbed the horses two times and went riding through my boy on one and threw on the other one. We went in the arena and went riding for an hour each time, right? That's not a lot of saddle time for a year. So we, uh, we ended up getting two bulls rifle season and, uh, horses are still there. So I'm, yeah, I'll run and grab them, ran and grabbed them and, uh, rode all the way in the trail. And it was, it was awful nice to been hiking in and out of this trail for weeks now, you know, days at least. And to ride in, I mean, it took me what was about an hour, hour and a half hike. It took me 15 minutes, right? Now, the, I sweated the horse up a little bit, but it's pretty nice to not use your two feet and use somebody else's four feet, to, especially, you know, you're climbing a couple hundred feet here and there. And when we're, when you're climbing a couple hundred feet, that doesn't sound bad, right? Well, when you're at 88 and you're going to 91, it's uh, there's not much air up there, Patrick. So we got into these two bowls and it's 12 bags of meat, you know, eight quarters and then the back straps and then all the neck and brisket meat. And so we got all these packs and yes, a, a, a seasoned horse can definitely pack a whole elk by itself for very short distances. I wouldn't be going over technical trails and doing 12 miles and doing that day in and out, but we're talking three, four miles. Yeah, a horse can do it, especially on cattle trails that are pretty untechnical for a horse. Technical for you and me, but you know, they're, they're more athletic than you know. We, uh, we loaded up, you know, and doubled up quarters on each one, put horns on one, and 
Then we put some some bags of meat on us and started leading them out because we just had the two. Well, when we first, I, I got one that's half Arab and, uh, well, I think it's half crazy too, but it just, <laughs> it, it needs more time. But they're also, they're just, you get a good quarter horse and they're, they're pretty, pretty straightforward sound, not super spooky. You know, you, you can, you can mess up around them and they just kind of tolerate it. The Arabs, <laughs> you crinkle a can or a bag wrong and they're, they're bucket all the way down the hill just because they feel like it. So we had a little bit of a rodeo just trying to get meat loaded up and tore one of the, uh, the pack bags right there. And so that made it even more difficult because now we've got, you know, we've got four panniards while well, one's torn. And so we're trying to repair it and get kind of double the load I would normally put. And just for everybody listening, what I would normally do is put the fronts in two panniards and then I take each one of those bags. I take one bag and put the neck meat and all the extra burger and any other meat, you know, the brisket meat in there. And that pretty much offsets the back straps and tenderloins. And so I put those two bags and the two fronts on one, and then I'll put the hindquarters and the horns on the other and go out with no meat on my back. And that's, that's ideal. In this situation, we doubled up on, you know, we put a set of hinds and a set of fronts on one, and we put a set of hinds and two meat bags on the other and horns. Well, that left one set of horns and two front shoulders that went in our backpacks. So we're walking out, you know, we're loaded with a front. It's not, it's not crushing, but it's, you know, you're talking 55, 60 pounds for a front quarter plus whatever was in your backpack to start with. So, you know, my backpack ranges in the 25, 35 pounds. So you're you're going out with 85 pounds on your back, 70 if you're lucky, but 80 pounds. And it can be uh <laughs> it can be daunting, you know. You need you need trekking poles for sure. If you don't have horses, I'd highly recommend boning the meat, right? You can you can cut down about 20% or so and a butcher could tell you the exact numbers, but it you don't, you can't eat the bones and you know, it's, it's weight. So anyways, we loaded up and started going out and things went really well on the way out. Had a few logs and few sticks that we had to trim, but now we, we made pretty good time out to the ATV where I had, uh, I'd led the horses from the horse trailer to the trailhead on ATV because the trail is just, the road's too eroded to get my horse trailer to the trailhead. And so there's a two, two and a half mile jaunt of just leading them back on the four-wheeler and it was you know we'd taken half the weight off the horses put on the wheelers and we're driving down well i i screwed up and got the lead wrapped around the rear tire it just there was too much slack between the horse and i and he was trying to pass me just so he could see where he was walking i i felt it right away so it was only one wrap and i stopped well it was a real steep section and so I'm holding the brake of the four-wheeler, trying to unwrap this lead rope. And I got the first wrap undone, and there's like half more wrap, but it's kind of stuck between the brake and the uh, rim of the tire. It's kind of wedged in there. And I finally went, you know, if I just unclip this horse real quick, I can pop that out and reach down. There. And he, he's a great horse. He, I've, I've had him for a long time, and I really like that horse. But I hit him in the face with that quarter that was on my backpack when I went to stand back up after I'd got the lead rope undone. Well, he noticed he was free. And so he just went to turn and start walking and going on his own. Well, that Arab behind him, I don't know if it was him, I don't know if it was Arab, but all of a sudden they just, they went from zero to 60 with meat loaded on them. And they ran down the hill till they hit a winter cattle fence. 
and instead of just standing there where there's a gate that you can let them through and go down to the horse trailer no they took a hard left and ran to river number one (laughs) they got over there and there's some rim rocks it was only four or five hundred yards but we're driving behind them on the four-wheelers trying to catch them because here's meat just bouncing in the air behind them (laughs) (laughs) it's funny now it wasn't funny then you know this is after all day of hiking and packing and quartering and running back and forth and out to go get the horses well I get to the gate, I get in front of them, they've turned around, they're coming back. I kind of put both my hands up like, hey, I'm going to stop these guys. And they dang near run me over. Well, they ran about two and a half miles along that fence. All I could see was dust. Jeez. <laughs> and this is, you know, five thirty, six o'clock at night, and it's, it's 100% my fault. And I'm pretty mad that I just didn't ask the other guy that was with me to just park his wheeler, come hold this horse real quick while I get this untangled right or my other thought was i could have taken the other end of the lead rope and just threaded it through his halter while i stood there and did the other end right so there's lots of coulda shoulda woulda's after well uh, surprisingly i mean we had that one ripped panniered right that quarter fell off pretty pretty quick and usually when you're if you're off balance more than five pounds loaded on a pack saddle you can roll that whole saddle underneath that horse right it just you get that extra weight pulling down and pulling down the other side keeps riding up higher and higher and higher and all of a sudden it gets to a a cantilever point it just rolls underneath him well he's got real high withers i had pretty tight he had a pack saddle on the first horse had a riding saddle on but the the pack saddle horse had the broken panniered and that quarter flew off pretty quick and I had actually, you know, tied him on. So the other one's still tied on. And <laughs> I'm watching him go out there. And I'm, I'm going to follow where they're at because I'm assuming that I'm going to find another quarter somewhere laying in the dirt, right? And maybe even the other horse is going to lose his. Yeah, I get, the, it's, it's at least two miles. I get out there and find them standing. And they're standing pretty much at a dead end. And they're looking at me like, well, what do we do now? And I'm like, well, you didn't have to do this. <laughs> So I gathered him up and started walking back. Well, that quarter was still on the one side. And so we're just slowly walking back. And we walked maybe halfway back and rolled that saddle. Oh, man. So I had to reset it and then figure out how to top load one elk quarter. And it didn't take too long. But yeah, I was not very happy with those two horses. Needless to say, we should have been out and done and soaking our feet in the creek at five in the afternoon. It was about nine when we got out. The entertainment of having horses, everybody. But, you know, at the same time, it would have been a lot harder to pack out had you not had the horses. So I'd still be there packing meat, Patrick. Yeah, it's, it's tough stuff. So I want to talk real quick about another sponsor, PK Lures. This is prime time fishing season for me. Uh, I've been out quite a bit. And I'll tell you, PK is a great thing to have in your arsenal. If you guys are going to be out there targeting trout, walleye, anything like that this fall, Get some PK spoons on board. They've got some great crankbait options, some jigs. You can find all of those great options at pklure.com. And uh, this is, like I said, October, November. It's prime time. Get out there, get some fishing done, especially after hopefully you've bagged, you know, your elk or whatever else you were going for. But again, pklure.com. So David, you know, just to kind of get towards the end here, I mean, you guys had some success and now you've got some meat. And so, you know, tell me a little bit about that and, you know, what what your plans are with it and how you're going to process it. So for the first year ever, I just looked at timeframes and look at work and I'd just taken, you know, quite a few days off. I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed. I, I uh, kind of dumped a whole bunch of work on on the, the employees at work and said, 
figure it out, sink or swim. And uh, they did some sinking, but they did some swimming. So uh, normally we, we butcher it all at home, right? We've got... Mm-hmm. Um, grinders and meat tubs and big cutting boards. And I've got a, my favorite knife is a uh, Victor Knox. It's a fillet knife and it's, you can almost bend that thing 180 degrees. It's wicked sharp. It holds an edge decent, but I mean, I can, with that knife and a boning knife, I can pretty well eat. And I kind of, I don't like a lot of silver on my meat. So I fillet out my steaks pretty good and having a good fillet knife, you can, and you want to do that meat when it's cool, right? In, in on the kitchen table, if you got the house at 80 degrees, you don't get a lot of working time and the meat starts to get, the juices start coming out a little bit, get slimy. And if you can cut that meat when it's cooler, you know, that's why all your professional guys, they hang that carcass, get it nice and cold and cut it up while it's cold, right? Those muscles constrict, tighten up, and it just, it's a much cleaner, faster, quicker job. So I, for the last 20 years, I've butchered all my own from burger to jerky sticks to steaks to roast to, and what we do is we uh, wrap it in one layer of saran wrap and then vacuum seal it. Try not to drop those vacuum seal bags. You poke a hole in them, you know, they don't have their effectiveness anymore. But I'll tell you, Patrick, by having that double layer, just vacuum sealing, you're going to get freezer burned meat. If you, you know, you notice with like butcher, they usually wrap it in a something and then they ratchet in butcher paper and it's still great. Mm-hmm. This is just that next level. And kind of, we have a two to two and a half year rotation on our meat, right? So... I kind of put the crops in the ground in the spring and we harvest in the fall, right? Well, I'm putting crops in the ground in the fall and we're harvesting in two more falls. So um, we have a stand-up freezer and then two chest freezers. So wife will go through and organize that stand-up freezer, you know, what we're going to be eating. And it's just, you want to eat that older stock first anyways, but I don't want to (laughs) be in April, May running out of elk meat, right? So I like to have have quite a bit of deer and elk in the freezer because that's that's what we eat. I mean, if we're having spaghetti, if we're having burgers, if we're having steaks, you're, you're going to be eating venison at my house. And so having that extra protection, and there's been once or twice, I, I remember I shot a bison in 2016 and in about 2018 or 19, we found a package and I think yeah, it was 16 was the bison. So it's a three-year-old package of bison. We opened it up. It was still vacuum sealed, still tight, saran wrapped. It was as good as three month old or six month old. So, yep. But this year, I uh, I dropped that bull off at the butcher and said, "Cut and wrap it, please." So, and I went back to work that same day, and I've been working since. I still haven't changed the voice message. <laughs> I have <laughs> checked okay. a few of the voicemails, and I've called quite a few people back. But well, and one of the things that you told me that you did that I think is pretty cool is when you're wrapping those steaks and whatnot, you get that high mountain seasonings out, get it seasoned up, then wrap it up and freeze it that way when you thaw it out it's ready to go and it is seasoned i usually take about a third of the back strap and i used to cut it in inch thick steaks right well now anymore i like to do what you know the jalapeno cream cheese meat log mm-hmm. roll like i told you about yeah. so i like my bat straps in about a, a four person serving size it ends up being about five inches long and so you just take that, sprinkle the seasoning on it, then saran wrap it, then vacuum seal it. And then I'm, I write on what it is. But yeah, as it's thawing, you, th- you throw it in the fridge a day before you're going to eat it. So you just let it thaw. It's already starting to uh, quasi dry marinate. Mm-hmm. But then you can take it out and toss it right on the barbecue. And it's that time of year for me too. I mean, we've got, uh, I, I have a pig that's butchered now and waiting to get it back and, um, 
I can tell you, I, I ask for the hams to come back fresh. And what I do is I cure it with the buckboard bacon seasoning from High Mountain and also do my own bacon that way. And it's really good stuff. And this it's is time consuming, but it's, it's time easy. consuming, but man, it's not hard. I mean, it, you take probably a half hour prep, put it in the fridge for 12 days, get it out, you know, wash it, wash it off, smoke it. It's ready to go. And I mean, you have some of the best stuff that you could ever put in your mouth. And, uh, you know, it's high mountain seasoning season, you know, anytime you get to fall, you know, it's time to go down to high mountain and get what you need. Actually, I just looked in the cupboard cause we, we, we make sure everybody that leaves the podcast here has a little sampler and I've, we've got usually some stuff on hand, but I will be going down and visiting and and restocking our supply as well. Well, Seth, when he was here, if you guys haven't listened to those episodes, go back and listen to them. But when Seth was here, he tried the um, Western style trout seasoning on some of those fresh trout that we caught. And changed his opinion on trout. Oh, he thought it was really good. And it it was. So uh, if you're out there and you're listening and you want to try it and see how it goes for you, go to himtnjerky.com. Again, himtnjerky.com. You can get everything from jerky kits to fish seasoning to brines to, like we were talking about, you can make your own bacon and your own ham or whatever it might be. Pepperoni, sausage, brats. I mean, the the list goes on and on and on. They've got it all, man. So We've talked about it. uh, The the whole meat muscle jerky is what I like. And the difference is you you take the same cure to make the whole meat. And you slice the meat real thin. You brine it for, I think it's 24 hours. Then you throw it on the smoke. Fillet (laughs) knife again. Uh, One trick I'll give everybody is put that meat in the freezer. It doesn't want to be completely frozen. Just semi. You know, starting to crystallize. And then you can take that fillet knife and you can slice it super thin. Take a big tub. You know, you mix it to the proportions. You sprinkle it on. It's in the fridge for 24. It's in the smoker for two to four. And you can get their jerky board and make it really easy to cut because it's all set up for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, the kids and the wife like the ground yep. jerky shooter stick. And I mean, it's it's way too easy. It's got a rectangle nozzle on the end of the jerky gun. You grind the meat, you mix the seasoning in it, you put it in the fridge for overnight, and then you shoot it out on wax paper. You can put it in the smoker or we put it right in the oven. And I'll tell you what, those kids go through gallons of that stuff. I don't, I like the whole, mo- I want to chew on it, right? I want to, yeah. I want to gnaw on it. They like to, they just gobble that up. So. I did seven or eight geese a few years ago that way. And man, that makes some good jerky too. I mean, if you have some goose breast laying around or something like that, you can also shoot that. So, so another thing I've found with, um, kind of just my own two cents of wild game cutting is hamburger. A lot of people are always questioning how much, um, fat to add to their burger. Right. And we add zero. We grind what, what the cuts they're going to be grind for burger. And we, sometimes she does a lot of dishes that we don't put any fat in. Um, actually we're to the point when I make hamburgers, we'll take some Ritz crackers and an egg, take a one pound package. And we're now, we got two boys here at home that are eating burger all the time. So we're now doing two pound packages of burger, but you take a, a, a handful of Ritz crackers and two eggs with two pounds of burger and mash it up. And that'll give it that uh, kind of gluten feel to stick together. Uh, it's obviously not carb free, but what I've found for me is by putting that fat in the burger, that fat actually gives that burger in the freezer a shelf life of, let's say, six months. By no fat in the burger, you're now extending that shelf life to 24 months. Yeah. So you want to, if, and here's the other thing you can do, and this is something I'll do, is if you take some fat and you do, some packages you're going to eat soon, it's no big deal, right? Like 
I'll take some pork fat. Oh, I love in. pork fat. I mean, the yeah. best thing is it's just so take good. some bacon ends bacon and ends, grind yeah. that up in your. Uh, I'm not denying bacon it. Ends. <laughs> yes, it's it's delicious. But you got to consume it fairly quick. Before yeah, it that's goes bad, but that's why we just. I mean, I'd rather take and if we're going to do smoked bacon ends for a weekend, I'd rather thaw that package out, take the grinder and take that small portion of bacon ends and just regrind it. Right. Yep. It's a little more labor. Yeah. You're making the grinder dirty again, but I don't like taking burger out of the freezer that doesn't taste good. No, I'm with you. And, uh, I think that's a good place for us to stop. I mean, you had, you had an adventurous year. You got some elk in the freezer, you know, well, you will have it here shortly. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good just to talk about it, kind of go through and evaluate what did I learn this year? You know, what's changed. And so it was kind of cool to hear, you know, some different things, especially at the full moon, how things had to work out. And, but I mean, you guys changed up the game and we're successful. So that's what matters. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely. I'd say be careful out there. We had one endeavor where, uh, uh, we drew blood on a person and I'm not going to throw the guy under the bus and uh, not get to drag it out. If you, <laughs> if you followed along on Instagram, you've already caught some of the story, but basically, you know, we have frail bodies and we're running around with sharp implements. Just be careful. It can happen in fishing too. Yes. I will tell a story on myself. I did stick myself pretty good in the finger with a fillet knife. It's Seminole Reservoir last year. It sucks. So just be careful. That's the biggest thing. Well, where we're at is you don't want to be, you know, we're, we're not easily accessible for emergency services. So, yep. you know, it, and it was no fault of anybody's, but yeah, we definitely, we had a little human blood on the ground. Not, not a ton, but enough to open my eyes that you really got to have a good first aid kit. Should know first aid, but you know, all the personal locator beacons in the world are not going to save you if no. if it's a fatal injury. We're all mortals, so we have to keep that in mind. Well, I think this is a good place to end it. Again, uh, if you want more content, you can go to ragcastoutdoors.com. David, how do they follow us? Uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can also ask to join Radcast Outdoors Nation on Facebook, and we share some cool stuff there. So definitely get on the socials and uh, share out this uh, wherever you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Apple, you know, Stitcher, Podbean. Definitely rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. And I'll tell you, download these episodes. That really helps us out a bunch. And again, thank you to our sponsors and go support them. <laughs>